Philosophy for Theologians, your regular look at philosophy from a Reformed perspective. My name is Camden Busey, and today we are continuing a discussion on Hume and Miracles with Daniel Schrock, Jonathan Brack, Jared Oliphant, and Bob LaRocca. Stay tuned now for part two of this discussion. Uh, from, you know, where does that concept come from? Uh, it doesn't come from matters of fact, and it doesn't come from, if it's to, to say it comes from... Uh, analytic thought is to engage in an incredibly vicious circle you know mm-hmm. you're appealing to the concept of of something being analytic to explain what what analytic is so that you know you how do you right. how do you get out of that you've presupposed <laughs> what analytosity is well and and to project <laughs> to project into the future this was uh, what we touched on in logical positivism was they had this uh, you know human notion of the verification theory of meaning which everything needs to be verified now what accounts for that? Where do you get that, that everything needs to be verified on a scientific level? Well, you just kind of have to assume it going into it. Yeah, that's and that's his second dogma of empiricism that Quine brings up. Uh-huh. Is, reductionism? Reductionism. Yeah, that's there right. you go. Uh, that, and that's, that's, you know, that's Hume. Yeah. That every, every state, meaningful statement can be reduced to a sensory impression. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's what the logical positivists are going to hang their hat on as well. Yeah. Oh, good luck, brother. <laughs> oh, very <laughs> nice. It was a little Desmond Hume. It played but... automatically. <laughs> oh. Good luck, brother. Oh. Um, See you in another life, Desmond Hume. Yeah, but we need you. Yeah, my constant. <laughs> Penny. Uh, Penny. We we need analyticity uh, to to actually have language function. Right. You know, we have to. Uh, otherwise, we we utter meaningless statements. And you know, as much as postmodernism wants to rail against um, you know analy- analyticity, we you know you have to. If you're going to utter something that has meaning, you have to have uh, you can't have a contradiction in your sentence. You cannot you cannot say this married man is a bachelor and have that sentence be meaningful. So where do the standards of analyticity come from? Analyticity. <laughs> it, it's not that <laughs> difficult. Yes. I like it. This is good. It's a running <laughs> joke. Let's keep it going. Yeah. Anal- 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 where do they come from? That's that's Tell the question that we're going to we're going to we're going to ask. Analyticonic. Uh, as as many <laughs> Love that. Um, you know, and Quine, Quine says that really the second the second dogma, reductionism, is it almost it's, it's the same as the first. Uh, the two dogmas are at root identical uh, because in a reduction of meaningful statements to sense data involves language, and this language is still dependent on the logical relationships of its terms. Um, so explicating these relationships is, is that's that's the task of analyticity. Yeah. Um, and so they're they're at root. Um, one, one. Oh, good luck, brother. <laughs> <laughs> See you in another life, yeah? Well, I hate this website. It doesn't work right. All right. Well, if I could, if I could just, I think that that's right. Quine definitely um, comes along and is another philosopher and has a great uh, kind of internal critique of what Hume's doing. Um, so I think Hume on its own falls apart just I- internally. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, if I could just, and maybe this isn't dir- the direction you want to go, so maybe we can come back to it. But I was wondering, uh, part of what Jonathan does on the tour when he, when uh, people are looking at Westminster is he goes uh, into the biblical theology of miracles and, and a proper view of miracles. I think that's yes. part of the problem with Hume. To. Yeah, okay, there you go. So, so Danny already my knows. Paper, my, positive, my positive response to him is, is that we have, to, we have to set biblical miracles in their proper epistemological context yeah. to answer him. 
in the proper, like I said, biblical theological context. So if we could take one example, maybe um, a lot of times the one that you like to bring up is uh, Jesus walking on the water, which, uh, you know, a lot of people see uh, even Hume itself himself. He says, uh, if I could just read this quote from the begin- from the beginning of uh, what Danny is talking about, he says, it is acknowledged on all hands, say, says that that learned uh, prelate, that the authority either of the scripture or of tradition is founded merely in the testimony of the apostles who are eyewitnesses to those miracles of our Savior by which he proved his divine mission. So he's kind of saying here that um, the the truth of miracles or the truth of Christianity stands or falls on whether these miracles actually happened or not. And their evidence. Yeah, exactly. And their evidence. Um, So, you know, did Christ do these? Well, if he did, then he's automatically going to be God or the Christ or, or everything is validated under the Christian position. And and what I, uh, my question is uh, for Jonathan, how he explains it to other people is um, taking the example of Jesus walking on the water. A lot of people see this as, wow, you know, this, this is a powerful thing to do. Water doesn't work like this. So he's, he's violating the laws of nature or stretching them or something. So Christianity must be true because he's walking on water. What else could be the case? And that's actually not the point of what he's doing. It's not just a magic trick to prove his power over nature, but it, something else is going on there. And if, um, maybe yeah, you that would to... be to, to understand that miracle just in a straight vacuum, where it's just, yeah. uh, just one stormy night, I walked on wa- water. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, man, you're awesome. That's crazy. Yeah, look what you could do. And instead, it's, you know, it's in the context of, uh, of that, that, that narrative. So what you have is Jesus Christ, um, it, first it's really dark at night. So there were even the whole reason they could see him is because he's glowing mm-hmm. on the water. Um, and what's mashed right in the center of that, of that whole, uh, miracle is two Greek words ago, a me when the disciples call out to him on the water. So they're like, you know, is that a ghost? And the response is I am. You know, yeah, which has so, huge biblical theological implications. Right. And so that's, uh, you know, the I am on the water, right, is that is a motif that has been running since the very beginning. Even yeah. Psalm In 20, Genesis. Psalm 29, which uh, talks about the voice of the Lord being over many waters. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah, it's pretty big. And then the, the pulling up of, you know, rescuing me from the watery pit, right? Right. And so you have uh, and Noah being you know taken and and the ark t- being taken from the chaotic waters mm-hmm. to the top of the mountain, and you draconic have draconic waters, draconic, right? That's right. <laughs> and then you say you have Jesus Christ pulling Peter up out of the waters. Yeah, and and to go back to an example that we mentioned earlier, the Israelites uh, crossing the Red Sea. Right. Um, a- again, you have the same kind of theme running throughout all these different biblical events. And it's so interesting because Peter in that passage says. When he's walking on the water and he's, you know, he's sinking, he he just says the word, save me. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's no other better way to say in that context, this is talking about redemption. Yeah, that's right. You know, save yeah. me. It's not like, hey, pull me up. I'm kind of drowning here. It's save me is the, is the word used. So anyways. Um, but, yeah. And it, we, we, yeah. And you, we're waiting into the, the positive. Uh, right. response to Hume now. And that and what that involves is is understanding that these aren't just magic tricks uh, that he's he's using to it to wow. They're people. illusions. Right. And those are some <laughs> ex- <laughs> yeah. Those are some examples of how of how we would explain it sort of biblical uh, biblically and redemptive historically these these uh, miracles but give us sort of the hermeneutics of a proper Christian understanding of miracles that would be an answer to Hume. Well, um 
can we get to that? Can I can I do one last huge internal critique? If your heart desires, my heart so very much desires, and this is really where Hume falls apart is um, the problem of induction. Uh, okay. This is this is what's the irony of the, an inquiry concerning human understanding is that he actually kicks up the problem of induction before addressing belief in miracles. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, like we were talking about before, uh, belief in a miracle requires you to set that extraordinary event over against your uniform, ordinary experience. Uh, it, it requires you to set it over against what we would, in, or, in ordinary speech, term laws, laws of right. nature. Um, but that's something he blows up. He throws a hand grenade into uh, induction which is the foundation of, of being able to actually uh, figure out what laws of nature are. Uh, right. And so uh, I'm, I'm sure most of, most of our listeners out there aren't – well, not most. Maybe they are, but you know, just in case they're not familiar with what the problem of induction is, basically the idea is how, um, how do we go about justifying rationally or, or providing warrant for our, our belief in inductive reasoning, mm-hmm. uh, that tomorrow when I wake up, uh, the causes and effects that I observed yesterday are going to be the same, going to be uniform uh, into the future, that when I drop my pencil, when I let go of it, it's going to go down mm-hmm. and not up. Uh, a regulatory that, principle. Yeah, uh, yeah, a regulatory principle of, of uh, you know, laws. Uh, and, you know, without engaging in some very complicated discussions in philosophy of science on what exactly counts as, as laws, covering laws and things like that, um, yeah, that, that's, that's a huge problem for Hume. And, that, and so uh, the irony is, is that what, you, what you do when if – Hume doesn't answer it. What he ends up saying is, you know, I, I have no way of answering this problem. Because if you appeal to induction, to say, which is what a lot of people will do if you, if you, in normal conversation. It's just always been like that. I mean, yeah. <laughs> oh, any rational human being would. Or how, Stein, how Stein, uh, Gordon Stein in the Bonson-Stein debate responded to it. Look, Doctor Bonson. If nature, it's went a trap. Out, this wait, is a trap. If, <laughs> if nature went out of its course, it would be on every physics magazine uh, cover, and people would know about it. It would be analyzed. It would be the one of the largest, you know, uh, finds in all, in all modern science. So it just it couldn't happen, or you know, it's just some kind. Yeah, of Yeah, and that, that's that's sort of a. There's a lot of metaphysical assumptions behind that. We would give uh, it analytician that we live to. To, to use Nancy Cartwright's. Favorite, favorite little phrase, and this is not the voice of Bart Simpson. I was going to say, that is the, that's yeah, the voice yeah, of Bart a, Simpson. She's a philosophy of science gal. Empiricism, uh, man. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, you. One of the things, one of her criticisms against covering law guys in, in uh, philosophy of science is that what they assume is that we live in a neat and tidy little universe that's governed by, by a lot of covering laws. Um, but she says we're not, we're not necessarily justified in believing that. And so that's the, that's the criticism to someone like with, Stein is they sort of sort of neatly sweeping away the problem yeah. uh, by just appealing to this the, their article of faith, uh, which is the scientific just community. Uniformity of nature. That they, they believe that. And that's what they're going to stick to. So yeah, you so, would use Hume against himself there, is what you're saying. Yeah, and so what he, what, he does, what he does in the inquiry is he destroys he the ability to appeal to probability. Because you don't and have then laws. 60 pages later, in his discussion of against why we shouldn't believe in miracles, he appeals to probability to yeah, say why is, we shouldn't. Uh, and is, so, you know, Hume has no basis in his own epistemology to mount 
the argument he does against our belief in, mir- in miracles because there, it, it rests on a universe that is uniform uh, in which our powers of induction can actually function so that we can judge in the future uh, what probably might happen. Right. And I, I'd like to add that if you watch the Christopher Hitchens-Doug Wilson debate at Westminster, Danny Schrock actually asks Christopher yeah. Hitchens this question <laughs> and what, about what, the problem of induction. And Hitchens and, immediately engages right. in circular reasoning when I asked him that. You know, I he asked says him, probability. Yeah, I said, he says probability, and I said, it's begging the question. And then he engaged in some sort of He's like, and then he's like, oh, let me tell you a story. Yeah, that's right. right. Let, me tell, let, me, let me show you how much I've I read was on a fishing many, trip once <laughs> in Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> and let me but, tell you, the flounder there. Right. No, but uh, they I, didn't I, ask you about induction. Right. You know, and, and the thing is, is built into Hume's epistemology is the inability to respond I to his observed own question. that. <laughs> right. Because exactly what right. has he done? He's, he has is, he is assumed, dogmatically assumed, that metaphysics is unacceptable as a philosophical enterprise. Oh, of and course so it is. There's no, there's no possible way he can solve the problem of induction that he kicks up. Because what do you have to do? You have to get behind uh, laws of nature. And when you do that, you've engaged in metaphysics. Right. So he, you know, he's, he's sort of ironically, dogmatically assumed his empirical position uh, a priori. <laughs> right. That's and that's that's sort of the irony that well, I mean that when you take Quine and Hume's own philosophy together, uh, yeah. he, he's he's this empiricist has made a lot of metaphysical assumptions. Right. Oh, that's great. That's an excellent critique, and um, I think that's probably the the best one there is because it's sort of it's it it's takes against Hume himself. against himself. Yeah. And another uh, very very well educated analytic philosopher. Yeah. Um, We'll defend the same time. Yeah. Uh, and so moving, moving well, and he, he rests in, okay. in at the end of his problem of induction, he rests in an incredibly dissatisfying position. You know, he says, I'm, I'm satisfied. You'll, you'll say to me that my, my practice refutes what I'm saying here as a philosopher. And then he says, my, I'm satisfied as an agent, but not as a philosopher, which is, it's really absurd to divorce your rational reflections, which is really what philosophy is from your everyday practice. That's the most useless sort of philosophy. Right. Yeah, that you is, can it's no longer in. wisdom. Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, you're, you're just sort of saying, well, this is just for Sapient, fun. Yeah. Um, and it's, 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 it's wild and, and crazy what he does, you know, it's, that's right. um, okay. and so getting to our positive, uh, positive critique here, uh, a positive response. Um, so how can we how can we avoid the horns of our earlier dilemma? How can we right. not uh, how can we not naively believe every account of miracles that we ever hear, uh, at, but at the same time hold to our belief in the account of miracles that are presented to us in the canon of Scripture? And so that's that's what we have to try to uh, maneuver around in our in our positive response to Hume. Um, so because because I mean even even if we do end up destroying Hume's epistemology internally, his internal inconsistency alone does still not let us escape that dilemma. So we have to respond to it. You know, we can't. That's, and that's a lot of times the, the move that I think Vantillians fail to make is that we, we love tearing down someone's epistemology, but then do we ever create positive responses? Right. Uh, you know. Then we just give no answer. Yeah, then we just leave people. Like, no, wait, you if, don't know what we, you're talking about. If we yeah. don't, See what it. we do is we anyway. create a bunch of incredible <laughs> skeptics. You know, and that's, that's not helpful. At all, in terms of building up the kingdom, I don't um, believe so, in nothing no more. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a, guys, he's a nihilist. 
must be exhausting. I'm not afraid anymore. <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a line from The Simpsons where uh, I think it was like Jimbo goes, I don't believe in nothing no more. Yeah, I'm but, going to law school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the big Lebowski. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Say that's what you want what about I'm the tenets of. of national socialism. At least it's an ethos. <laughs> okay, so so picking up on uh, the biblical theological move that we were doing yes. earlier. So what are what are the special circumstances that we would appeal to as Christians to say that we should we should believe canonical accounts of miracles? Uh, and first of all, is that we we do not dogmatically dismiss metaphysics as a viable philosophic enterprise. That's that's the first peg we hang our hat on is that, um, to use Van Til's phrase, the what precedes the that, or uh, the, the connotation precedes the denotation, at least the latter cannot be discussed intelligently without at once considering the former. And that's, you know, that's what exactly where, where Calvin starts his institutes, is that all of our knowledge simultaneously is reflection on ourself and on God. That's, that's our starting point as, as thinkers in the world, is that we, we have an immediate knowledge of God. Um, and so we can engage in metaphysics. We don't, uh, because that God has actually revealed himself to us. Uh, you look like you're going to say something, Bob. No, that's a good oh. point. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, our, it, that, that knowledge comes by being created in God's image. Um, <laughs> let, me, let me see if I can condense some of this stuff here. <laughs> what would you say, what would you say, Dan, if I asked you just as a, just a regular Guy, and I, I have a, a regular Joe the brain. Joe the plumber. Joe the plumber. <laughs> if he was Thank here, you, what would right, he say? Right. Um, well, why should I believe in the Bible's miracles and not um, Muhammad's yeah. miracles There's or the, rub. the Mormon miracles? Yeah, and so Oprah's that's that's miracles. where we that's where we move exactly where you guys were talking about earlier. Of losing weight and gaining weight <laughs> and <laughs> miraculous speeds. Um, <laughs> miracle whip. Yeah. <laughs> That's, 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 that's where we engage in exactly the type of thing that you were doing earlier, is that we, uh, we don't believe God just performs miracles willy-nilly. Right. That it's this sort of random magic trick that he yeah, does. Yeah, you never see a biblical kind of, you know, it's just something totally random where someone, uh, you know, oh, my pot is now a little bunny right, for yeah. no reason. You know, no, that that's completely random. It has no purpose whatsoever. Every miracle that you see in Scripture has a definite biblical theological purpose. Yeah, and it's it's always attached to redemptive history. Yeah, right? um, you know that's that's the that's the assumption. That's the context it fits into. Is that we we believe in a God who's actually doing something in history to redeem man from sin and to redeem his creation from from the curse. And so, you know, that's what um, that's what Ritterboss has to say about about miracles. Let me. Let me find Ritterboss and read him to Yeah, give us a Ritterboss quote because it's Ritterboss it's interesting because it that's a strange thing that you have to do as a, a seminary student at Westminster. You, have to quote you compete, eventually. you know, or, or you put up against a Hume and Quine, Ritterboss, mm-hmm. you know, which is you string like, oh, that's a huge stretch, but it isn't when you get into when you just you do the hard work and you get into you know foundational levels of mm-hmm. explaining why it is you have to have a hermeneutic for miracles is basically what hume is asking is what's your her- hermeneutic you know why do mm-hmm. your miracles count mm-hmm. yeah and that's that's what you have that's what wilson should have done in response to, agreed um, yeah i agree to, to hitchens he did do it a little bit he said he did call other miracles counterfeits but um you know really we have to engage in in a discussion of what what are miracles in scripture and why does that why does it distinguish them from other religions is that there's actually that they, they actually fit into a, a larger 
uh, scheme of re- the larger scheme of redemptive history and what God's doing. And so, like Ritterboss says, particularly with Jesus' miracles, Jesus' miracles occupy. O- this is from the coming of the kingdom. Uh, I said occupy, occupy <laughs> a place uh, that is in every respect organic and natural in the idea of the coming kingdom insofar as it renders visible the restoration of the creation and so the all-embracing and redemptive significance of the kingdom. They do not rest on some personalistic, charismatic talent or miraculous power, right. but on the breakthrough of the transcendent kingdom of heaven. Luke hmm. 10, 7 through 9. Jesus' miracles are messianic deeds of salvation. They bear an eschatological character. Right. Yeah, so exactly. Um, what doesn't these days? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, yes, that's a... <laughs> To, to bring back up the, the Wilson-Hitchens debate, it's interesting. We see all the comments that are posted on that debate. And I would say um, the vast majority of people from like an atheist or agnostic camp always comment on uh, Wilson's comment that, you know, the ones I believe in are the ones I believe in. I think that's a direct quote from the, the debate. And they're like, at that point, game over. You yeah, know? because I mean, then you're, you're, you're arbitrary. You're uh-huh. a deist. And uh-huh. you've, uh, he said that. Yeah, he, yeah, he did, and and it's in a, a certain really context. A but point. from from to an atheist ears, it's like, oh, well, you're just a complete atheist, and you have yeah. no level of certainty whatsoever. You're just believing something because that's your preference. Yeah, and we we can't we cannot go there. We have to take the Vantillian route, which is, uh, you know, we can't we can't just simply argue for the historical probability of these miracles, which is what a lot of Christian apologetics is attempting to do. Because right. Yeah, always, Habermas, always, always, resurrection. The response is, okay, I'll grant you that. So what? Yeah, exactly. So something, so something unusual happened. Uh-huh. Um, what it doesn't you know, even if you, even if you prove the resurrection, if you do not have the proper theological context to yeah. interpret that fact, the what that precedes to that, yeah. uh, you, you know, you've you've just been spinning your wheels as, as an apologist. Yeah. So really, what you have to even do, even Tim Keller does that. Yeah, <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, I mean, what what you have to do is you have to wreck it. You have to point out to your opponent that in attacking. The Christian concept of miracle, they're not just attacking some isolated point in our system of belief. They're attacking the entire context that miracles fit into. And so what they have to engage is is not just a simple critique of our belief in miracles because those miracles fit into a larger epistemological framework of our belief in the authority of Scripture and our belief in the triune God. And when— when, when Paul comments on that in First Corinthians 15, when it's the resurrection chapter, and he talks about the first fruits. It's not just, wow, this is crazy. A guy was dead, and now he's alive. That's amazing. What a, what a crazy thing of, of history. It's, it's more, um, this was to usher in the new eschatological age, and he's the first fruits, and, and we're going to be part of that at some point when he comes again. We yeah. are going to be resurrected with him. Um, it's not just like you said. It's not just a magic trick. It's not something you know ex- extraordinary. Right. It's it's that, but it's so 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 much yeah. more, and it and has like, a meaning within redemptive history. Yeah, and like what Tipton points out in his little essay um, in in Revelation and Reason yeah. on, on the Areopagus speech Bingo. is yep. that you know Paul's pursuing a covenant lawsuit there in yeah. Areopagus. He's not just using the the resurrection as this this random miraculous event that because it's so extraordinary. You should believe. Yeah, exactly. In, in, in that's not faith. it at all. He's, that that event fits into the that's larger. Crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's crazy. That's crazy. And so you know that we have a <laughs> we have a system of belief that accounts for those miracles. And yeah, so right. you have to get uh, Hume or whoever your opponent is. Obviously, I can't argue with Hume right now. But whoever you're debating, Brother. you you have to get them to understand that you, you're not. They're not just attacking. Uh, 
these isolated beliefs in particular miraculous events, they're attacking the entire system which accounts for those events as right. well. And so that's where we engage in a holistic defense of uh, our belief in miracles, that these, these sets of beliefs are – and this is where we end up avoiding the dilemma, the horns of our dilemma, is that what we have is we have an entirely different class of beliefs involved. They're not your normal everyday beliefs uh, because, for instance um, – They're principial. Yeah. <clears throat> and hermeneutical. Yeah, they're, they're – yeah. Well, that's. I mean, that's Simply the interesting. Hermetical. That's the interesting. Uh, I, that's what I. I. I find. You know, it's. It's difficult to understand. It's also. It's something I think it needs a little bit more work on. Is what, how how theological principles actually function, um, how certain doctrines of ours are actually, the the authority upon which we found all the rest, uh, but because we do have these, the doctrine of God and doctrine of Scripture. These are if if we do not have if we somehow disprove these we've disproven everything. If we mm-hmm. somehow dispense through some kind of investigation with our doctrine of scripture, we've dispensed also with our investigation. Mm-hmm. Or if we do the same thing with God, because these are principial for us, and all arguments need uh, foundational principles uh, at the outset, nonetheless. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point. Theology proper. I mean, God is a God who created this universe that we live in, and so He completely has power to uh, turn water into wine if he wants. Oh, yeah. That, I mean, you know, give me a break. You know, creating something from nothing and turning water into wine, no comparison. Yeah, so, because they would say, well, that's physically impossible, and that's just, that's not a category that Christians deal with. That's yeah. not part of our world is yeah. physically impossible. And the, and the interesting thing today, even in, uh, it's even being somewhat influenced in, I would say, even reform circles uh, would be an attempt to, dismiss any quote-unquote mythical characteristics to Old Testament literature because it sounds too miraculous. It's like, you know, this isn't really how it was created. Because The the program of demythologization demythologizing is basically the same thing. Right, yeah. yeah. Hume engages in is you're just going to go through anything that appears to be connected to the supernatural you're gonna you're gonna demythologize. It. Yeah, and de- demythologicity also has it. <laughs> yeah. well, this this is we don't we don't have to go into this. If, we don't have to go in. <laughs> we don't have to go into this if we don't want to. But um, just to bring up a very very recent um example, uh, Pete Inns recently wrote for the Huffington Post, and he, did he really? Yeah, and he he made his What's his that? case that the Huffington Post. It's a it, it's somewhat of a political um, blog out there, and it it, it leans huge readership in the yeah, millions. Huge. It, it's yeah, huge. It's very very popular, and, and it has some good articles, but it very it skews left politically, uh, yeah. no doubt about it. And they would admit to that. Um, so he wrote for that, which is pretty impressive. It's a it's a broad readership, but he makes his, his point that he makes everywhere else uh, in in his famous book and, and in Biologos and all that um, that you know the Bible is not meant to comment on scientific uh, problems and issues, which in one sense is definitely true. That's yeah, of course. A, we can completely respect that point. But what I wanted to you know his application of that is very different from our application of yeah. that. Um, he, you know, dealing with evolution and those kinds of things, and then uh, you know, turning to to stories as myth and and all those kinds of questions. But what I want to ask is, okay, if the Bible is not commenting ever on anything scientific, then where is the concept of miracles? Um, there is, is no. What is science? This is what is science. Well, let, let me let me finish. The 
the whole concept of miracles, there, there is no evidence today whatsoever that miracles ever happened. Ever, ever. Not one. Not a, not a bit in terms of just scientific evidence that, that he likes to espouse. Um, so if you're going to go with evolution is hands down the scientific theory out there, which is what N says, um, that you know Christians are embarrassed today because the Bible doesn't seem to support evolution, and evolution is just a fact that everyone should believe. Right. Um, where do miracles fit in? Because, and so my point is, I think, and I could be wrong about this, you would have to deny miracles because there's no scientific proof for it whatsoever if you're going by the definition of scientific proof that evolutionists espouse. Thing is, right. I don't. I don't believe that. I don't believe that Doctor Enns, even in his book, was concerned with science. He's concerned with history, and because science is a lot uh, less divisive and a lot less explosive, he can say the Bible is not about science. But he really is saying the Bible is not about facts, because right. that's what science yeah. concerns itself with, and that's what history concerns itself with. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I mean. Like a guy like Ernest Ernst Trolst, you know, mm-hmm. is yeah, you big know, into that's, history. That's why he's he's gonna. He's he's attempting to make his historical investigations as a biblical scholar scientific, and so that's yes. why he you know he throws out miracle because of his principle of correlation, where you have a closed universe; it's not an open universe. Um, yeah. So, anyways, I think to wrap that up, I think a good uh, what we're trying to get at here is if you have a sort of quote unquote reformed conservative theologian that's that's just questioning some of the historicity of Old Testament because it's, sound, it's against science or it's against um, something that doesn't really comport to the way we naturally think about the world, right? It doesn't match up. Then hermeneutically, if they're a good biblical theologian, they'll drive that hermeneutic all the way through to the New Testament. In other words, yeah. you can ask the same questions about the resurrection that you ask about yeah. the flood or Jonah well, and, and, well. and exactly. really, and really, um, to, maybe to end on this point, um, when we're at when we're engaged with the question of miracle, we're really not engaged with any any different question than what happens in our normal everyday experience. Because you know, we we affirm with Scripture that the universe is upheld by the power of God. That providence is what controls history. And so facts are what they are because of God's control. I mean, we're not we're not deists, and right, that's that's right, the danger right. when we start talking about miracles and trying to define them as mm-hmm. suspension of the laws of nature. Is that we Christians so often end up falling into a deistic position yeah. of of defining laws in a way that's in a way that's, that's deistic. These are these the sort of tertium quid, this third thing imposed into the world that God uh, he's put there, but he's not superintending these things. He's not uh, you know. There's no preservation, there's no concurrence, and there's no mm-hmm. governance, yeah. uh, to use Bovink's three, three-fold definition of what, uh, what providence is. And so you know, we, can't, um, we can't separate our discussion of normal facts from our discussion of miracles, because obviously it, uh, we, we can conceive, even Hume can conceive of things being differently, doesn't it? The miracles do not entail logical contradictions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this gets at the question of, of you know, what you were saying with science. We're engaged with facts. And who controls those facts? The triune God of the universe. And so yep. and when, when we're engaged with scriptural, the scriptural accounts of miracles, we're engaging in something that has – it's in an entirely different epistemological category than simply our, our normal beliefs of accounts because we have there an account that is not just human. It's divine. It's inspired. And so in that sense, its authority is in an entirely different category. Mm. Mm. I like that. 
Well, with that, I think I'll hit the uh, outro music. Fantastic episode. A lot to think about and chew about, uh, chew on right there. Uh, if you want to read more Hume, I'll put some links in the show notes and you can uh, figure out what you want to wade through. Uh, but until then, you can visit Westminster Online at Facebook.com slash Westminster Online. Of course, at YouTube.com slash Westminster Online. And iTunes U. And iTunes U. And we're available at ReformForum.org. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you join us again next time on Philosophy for Theologians.